Welcome to the Nobody Told Me That podcast. My name is Teresa Duncan, and my goal is to share information that you probably weren't thinking about. I love preparing my friends for situations that may come completely out of the blue. I also want to share with you many of the tidbits I've picked up over the years. If you absolutely have to tune out before the end of the show, make sure you check out the show notes for more details and information on today's topic. And thank you so much for making me a part of your day. And we are back with another edition of Nobody Told Me That. And I'm going, ooh, financial this time around. I've got Perrin DeSports here with me, and he is with Polaris Healthcare Partners. And he's also a fellow podcaster, but we'll get into that in a second. How you doing? I'm great, Teresa. Thanks so much for having me on today. I was really looking forward to this. Appreciate the opportunity. I don't have a lot of financial people coming to talk about finances, right? Like, so I talk about how to collect and how to bill and all that. But this is the real, like, part of the revenue cycle that... I really love and and also just how to keep your practice running. And I know that managers nowadays are looking for that high level guidance on how to make the actual business run more efficiently. So I do appreciate that you're that you're here. Now, you are the co-founder and I guess the the head honcho or co-head honcho of Polaris Healthcare <laughs> yeah. Partners. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that that's on my business card, but it could be, you know, uh, I, uh, Walker Sinha is my partner, my co-founder founding partner. And we have 12 team members with us that we've hired over the last two years. But technically, he and I are the two principals behind the business. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. And I will also put a link to your podcast, which I highly recommend. I can't tell you how many times I forwarded episodes uh, over to my old boss. Uh, just, you need to listen to this. You need to listen to this because he's Thank at that you stage. For that. Absolutely. He's at that stage where he knows he's going to have to sell, but he's still like, eh, you know, fingers in the ears, la, la, la. But I got it. It's my duty to get him ready for it, right? <laughs> so whether he wants to or not, it's going to happen. Well, um, that's smart. People that rush into a sale opportunity don't always have the greatest outcomes or experiences. And those that tend to prepare for it, get their personal financial house in order and, and prepare for the process involved, typically have a, a better experience because it, it really can be an emotional roller coaster. So kudos to you for trying to get him ahead of the ball, you know. Thank you. Thank you. It won't be that difficult, but you know, this it's, I know from being his manager for years and years that it's what is that little trickle of water does erosion that's that's, that's right. my mess my modus operandi with that guy um, that's right. <laughs> so when you sent in um you know what we could talk about I was thrilled because you said, let's talk about how when an office is expanding, growing, purchasing, whatever, they they tend to lose money. I hear this all the time. We're like, I thought this was going to be like a slam dunk. If I made a million, I'm going to make two million. There's not an exponential like return, right? So what were you thinking when you wrote that? Like, is there, are there any specific examples that maybe that, that come to mind when you talk about that? Yeah, you know, I think there, there are a lot. So first and foremost, as you know, and just in case your audience doesn't, we're a, a firm, Polaris Healthcare Partners, that works with group dental practices. We call them doctor-founded and debt-funded. And what that means is a fancy, like, million-dollar term for the entrepreneurial dentists who want to own more than one location, and they're using bank funds to grow. So all of our clients are pre-private equity, but they typically have more than one location. And what we find is that those who want to build a group practice typically start out with a successful solo practice. 
over some period of time, they've built a really good business. It has great clinical outcomes. They may be the sole clinician there. They may have a partner or an associate in there. They probably make a healthy amount of income. And by and large, life's pretty good. You know, they can control everything in those four walls and they're, they're making good money doing it. So the thought being, well, this is pretty easy. Let's just add a second location. And what we've built in the first location is going to be easy to replicate in location number two. It typically isn't. We see a lot of people make some common mistakes and get into trouble when they start typically acquiring practices because that's the easiest road to grow versus doing a startup, a de novo. So most of them will pursue a gross strategy that is acquisition-based. So they're buying an existing practice. Usually they want the seller to stay on board for a little while, a couple of years. And the thought process is, well, it's an existing practice. It has patience. It has revenue. It has some level of profitability. There's less risk to me if I buy that practice. And what they don't really think about is that if the seller is staying on board, especially that the seller built that business over a long period of time, he or she likes doing things their way, which right. might not be your way. And the staff <laughs> might have been around for also a very long time. And they mm -hmm. like the way he or she did things, not the way that you want to do things. So the we call this integration, the buying of the second practice and integrating it with the first practice is a challenge culturally and from a leadership standpoint. <laughs> That's the most obvious thing, right? You get that by pushback from employees who don't want to change and do things your way. The other thing that's arguably more alarming is that most people look at buying a practice because it's for sale. They uh -huh. think because it's for sale, I should buy it. They don't think of it with any discipline in mind. And what I mean by that is what type of dentistry is being done? Is it the same that I do in my core practice? Do I have the ability to replicate? If something happens to the seller and they get struck by lightning, can I step in and do the, the work that they're doing? Or, or could we improve some of the clinical outcomes in that practice? What are the, the top two or three ways that we plan to improve revenue in that business? Am I going to put an associate in and maybe we're going to, instead of being open three days a week, we're going to open five days a week? Are we going to take more insurance or less insurance? Uh, is there Medicaid exposure? You know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with Medicaid, but if it's not part of the way you operate your core business, there's some significant changes in compliance, especially that are involved with it. There's a mindset shift as well. I mean, you really, your team has to be ready for that. It, I, I like that you brought up the insurance piece because, and I do want to make sure we spend some time on that. I would imagine that if you see an office for sale, you have to look at whether or not it's efficient. Like, are you able to, because it would be easy if they're not really well run. Like, it's a pretty easy improvement. That's a good return on your investment to go in and just implement systems that weren't there. It could be insofar as much as the staff is willing to implement those on your behalf. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, that is a problem. <laughs> yeah, well, it could, I'm not saying it always is, but people, right. you know, change management is hard and there's nothing <laughs> that will erode value faster than that and just create a lot of headaches. And remember, this is now a second location that you're not going to be in for five days a week like you are your core business. And so you have to be kind of eyes wide open about that. And the important thing to, to kind of size up the business in terms of what it is and does its operational and clinical 
capacity and outlook reflect what we do well in our core business? Are they more similar than they are alike is one way of looking at it. But the other thing is, what are you going to pay for it? Mm-hmm. You know, all too often a broker will represent a practice for sale as a percentage of collections. You see it listed as 80% of collections or 80% of revenue or 60% or something like that. And the reason that that's important is because usually the way a broker values the business it is as if a bank-funded young associate is going to buy out the senior seller, you know, and take over the business. And the senior right. seller is going to ride off into the sunset in short order. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. And banks love funding those transitions because they're very effective and they have a, yeah. a model to lend money to allow you to do that. But it's different if you're going to be sort of an absentee owner. If you're going to own that second location uh, and you're not really clear about what the cash flows are when you're paying an associate or the seller to do the clinical work in it, you have to understand the difference between what the income out of that business is and what the, the free cash flow after debt service and taxes is. And that's one of the okay. things that gets a lot of people in trouble is that they, they seemingly pay a reasonable amount for the practice in terms of percentage or dollars, but they haven't run the cash flows on it. And all of a sudden, their great first practice is funding the second practice to keep it afloat. Yes, I see that a lot. I mean, obviously not as much as you, but I definitely see that. And one question about the banks, it, will the bank require a certain amount of on-time, like that, that the purchasing doctor spends time there? Is there Are there any conditions? contingencies built in? Not that I'm aware of or not typically. What I will tell you is that most banks that love lending money to dentists on their first or second practice and are very comfortable with that because the default rate risk is very low. Uh, okay. Dentists just don't default on loans. They're they're a great credit profile, typically. One of the things that banks do understand is that if you own a successful practice and you acquire a second one, you can probably keep it all glued together. And banks are usually okay. comfortable with that from a risk profile, even though you can't be in two locations at once. When you start getting to three or four or five locations, that's a completely different credit box and a completely yeah. different risk profile. So while they don't require you to spend two days a week in location one and two days a week in location two, they just, they are less inclined to loan money in multiple locations or at least do it at the rate uh, that the dentist uh, originally was able to obtain on his or her first or second location. So we see the banks that do loan money in multiple locations, the rate is typically higher because the Uh risk is greater. Okay, that makes sense. The other snafu that I hear most often, just because I'm in more contact with admin people, is that you're right, the first practice is fantastic. Everything's great. Systems go. The second practice, okay, well, she's going to now split time between the two. She's going to keep on top of of it. She's going to be the one to manage the people. Uh, doctor goes, well, I'll manage the doctor. You manage the team. Then by the time the third, and that's already going crazy. Then by the time the third practice comes along, the wheels are off the bus. Just it's a total disaster, crash and burn. Manager's burnt out. She's looking for another job. It's just, it's a bad situation. So what do you see this where a doctor and a manager coming in, they're, you know, fresh faced, they're excited. They're like, we're going to do this. We're going to grow. And and do you look at the manager like, do you have any idea what you're going to be doing now? Like, <laughs> how do you prepare the manager? Because I really think our biggest asset is also our biggest downfall. We think we can do it all. And a lot of times we can't, but when we can't, it's tough. So how do you, how do you prep a manager? I think the best businesses that we've seen 
brain that tend to promote from within. The thought process is that, you know, in the core business, the, the first business, we've got a, a Cracker Jack office manager and some teammates who've been with us for a little while that are that are on the cusp of, of being able to take on a greater leadership so if we acquire a second location, it could be that we need to take our current office manager who's doing a really, really good job and migrate them to that second location to lead that location for us because he or she knows how we like things done. They know the rhyme mm-hmm. and the reason behind the, the way we schedule and the policies and pr- processes and everything else that make the mothership run so smoothly. And we want to, yeah. it's called cross-pollination. We want to cross-pollinate both our culture and our systems into the second location, but probably do it gradually, you know, not in <laughs> one fell swoop to upset the apple cart. So, but we sure. want somebody who we trust now leading that that next location. And we know that we have somebody waiting in the wings that's ready to step into that office manager role that the, the previous person vacated. On the other hand, if maybe the acquired practice has somebody who's an office manager who's qualified and has been there and seemingly is a good fit and and you know there's nothing there's nothing that we can discern that would be a red flag you know and uh-huh. we want to keep them in that role then maybe our office manager that we have is ready to be promoted to more of a regional position where she can where she can sit over each location bounce between the two but not have any line responsibilities in either one of them now it helps if they're able to monitor things from one location right is that is the use of a dashboard or is the use of cloud software where does that help with that? How do you, because that seems to me like that would be a problem if you haven't centralized yet. Yeah, I think with the the number of cloud-based dashboard systems, they're able to work with most popular software applications. I think that's a, a huge plus because uh-huh. forcing a newly acquired practice to change practice management systems oh. is just a headache that, I mean, even the enterprise level DSOs that, that like for that to be done typically don't do it until about nine months to a year down the road. It's just too much change and it tends to accentuate the negative about the new employee's experience. And it just adds an element of anxiety that is not good all the way around. So if you can achieve some level of, I don't know, oversight, control, monitoring of of systems and schedules and things like that, if you can do that with a a cloud-based dashboard, that's the easiest way to get to that end without completely disrupting the newly acquired business. So you are national, right? Your firm is national. Yeah, we, we're we headquartered out of Charlotte, North Carolina, but uh, we work sea to shining sea. <laughs> so I have a question then about what you're seeing in the workforce. Uh, since you are seeing it across the country, has the the very strange workforce situation that we're in, uh, has that affected any offices that were planning to grow? And now they're like, yeah, maybe we'll hold off. I mean, because that's a big hit on the line item, right? Salaries uh, and expenses. How, how's the workforce factoring into these decisions. Yeah, so it's really the perfect storm, right? I mean, you had the exiting of the baby boomer generation that was the largest generation workforce-wise in history, and now they're they're beyond retirement age, and they're literally sitting on the sidelines. And then you had a bunch of others that might have been younger that opted out um, or wanted a change in career out of healthcare services, and, and it's left a major overhang in the industry. And I don't think any of us are immune from that, whether you run a group uh-huh. practice or a 
solo practice doesn't matter if you're specialty or, or general dentistry. So, I mean, we've heard about a, a number of groups that have started their own dental assisting program for the sake of filling in some of those gaps, sponsoring a, a hygiene scholarship for the local hygiene programs and things That's along great. those lines. What I would tell you is, you know, I prior to becoming an entrepreneur and launching our business. I, I spent 15 years working for Patterson Dental Supply and I ran three different businesses for them. And the, the company was really good to me. Um, I was a general manager for them. And one of the things I learned when I started running some of the larger operations was that recruiting for a growing business, recruiting is a 24-7 endeavor. It is not a fill a need type of a, a thing that's on your to-do list. And uh-huh. for those, you know, it may be different in a solo practice because, I mean, hopefully you have less turnover, but if you have a, a multiple location group, there are more people involved and there's probably more opportunity for turnover. And so if you're going to build a, a group practice, the biggest challenge is obviously turning over associates. But secondary to that is staff. And and for Uh those that are growing, we try to impress upon our clients that recruiting is not something you stop and start when you need it. You should always endeavor to to maintain momentum. You should have a a recruiting process. You should always have five to 10 resumes for any position that you think may turn over, even if that person is already employed and seemingly happy somewhere else. There's nothing wrong with with having uh, a list of candidates who aren't necessarily available today. You never Uh know when that might change. But it's, it's critically important to have a fallback position so that you can get holes filled if you have to turn somebody or if somebody quits, or it could sure. be simply a growth position that you just need to add headcount in a given role. Uh-huh. And to, to start that process when you have a need is, is really problematic. I have a couple of doctors I was talking to recently, and they all are holding off on bringing on an associate because they just, they're not able to keep staff. And it's it's been hard. And, and I know some of them, a couple of them I'm, I can understand, but the ones that I was really talking to that it's, I understand it's tough for them. So I, I don't know how this is going to let up. I don't still, I see that the dental assisting schools are coming up. I see that there's a little bit more funding, like you said, for hygiene, but it's a trickle. I think we're far from reaching equilibrium again. And uh, what does that mean? Workforce models change. I think we're seeing it with outsourcing for sure. That's taken a huge change and DSOs can really leverage that. Group practices can really leverage that they can. I think that there are some outsource resources that are scalable from a single location up to a couple of hundred or a thousand locations, especially on revenue cycle management like Rectangle Health and Medicine, just for example, are, are partners of ours as well. We do some work with both of those companies and that's a sort of a plug and play scalable solution on, on those two types of aspects. And, you know, I think the, you mentioned wages in general. I mean, it, it is the <laughs> largest line item on anybody's P&L. It doesn't matter if you're still practice or a group practice. And if you can figure out ways to appropriately reduce headcount or not replace headcount in a group practice, you can certainly gain efficiencies. But in terms of, you know, you you don't want that to stymie the growth of the business from a productive capacity either. And I mean, I think that's kind of the the teeter-totter on it, honestly. When you are talking to a manager, they come to you in the conversation, you're, I guess, doing some strategy planning with the dentist and the manager. Are there some times when you look over and you think, okay, the manager needs a little bit more information on this, this, and this? If you could wave a magic wand to make us more financially 
savvy, obviously not up to your level because you're the one handling it all, but what is there that a manager can learn about that could help them be more, I guess, uh, really an advantage with you in the room? How can we help? Yeah, I think, again, this is a little bit more in a group practice context. A group practice grows typically one of two ways. They either build new practices, we call that the de novo strategy from scratch, Mm -hmm. or they acquire more practices. Uh, or a blend of both. But those are two different disciplines. So the first thing to think is if the founder of the business or founders uh, want to continue to to grow the business and add new locations, how are we going to do that? Are we going to do it through a, a cold start? We're going to find a location. We're going to build it out. We're going to start marketing and, you know, uh, and open the new doors on a new location from patient number one. Or are we going uh-huh. to acquire practice from a, a seller or, you know, somebody in the local community? So if it's a if it's a de novo strategy, a cold start strategy, we call those launch teams. It's always important for the office managers who are kind of the frontline responsibility. You know, it's always re- important for them to be thinking in a de novo strategy, at least, what's the lead up to opening? What are we doing in terms of wh- what is the opening date? Do we have one that's certain? Are we starting to take pre-appointments? What is the marketing strategy going to be and how quickly? does the um, the founder or the founders want to grow this new practice? Uh-huh. Is it one new patient a day, every day for the foreseeable future? Or is it, you know, uh, we're going to build for ADOPS, we're going to equip more, and we want to be at 90% capacity by the end of the third month? You know, that that's a totally different scenario. So being dialed in on the role the office manager plays in a de novo scenario is critically uh-huh. important because they are the leader of the people that make the patient stick and their first experience to keep them coming back. And, and I think that's... That's, that's super important. That's also very controllable. We love de novos because you don't have the culture issues and the change management issues I mentioned before. You can yes. kind of do it the right way the first time, you know? So, but, it, but an office manager can typically make or break that in a de novo strategy for sure. I hear this from doctors like, I want to do this, but I don't think my manager is capable. I don't usually step in at that time. This is just just talking, but I'll usually say, well, maybe there's some financial classes or maybe there's some change management. Conflict resolution is something I recommend a lot too. But what you just described is very, it sounds very checklisty and tactical, which is actually good, you know, because we're good at that. We're good at going down the checklist and creating forms and all that kind of stuff. So now let's move over to the the second scenario. What do we do there? So acquisitions are that integration piece where if, if it's a, in a de novo strategy, if it's a launch team, then in uh, acquisitions, it's an integration team. So what is the role that the office manager plays in the current location? And can he or she either replicate that role in a new location if necessary or scale to a leadership, i.e. a regional role for the integration team. The thing that most solo dentists don't think about is, okay, I'm going to buy this next location and then what? (laughs) You know, what happens next, right? Right. And and typically they themselves, the founder dentist, is working a relatively full schedule, clinically speaking, I mean. So, (laughs) you know, there's also the availability of time. Like, okay, you you bought another practice. Now what? Well, you're working four days a week behind the chair. It's tough for you to, to be there. So who's going to be there to make sure that practice that we just acquired is continuing to hum like a top? Or if we bought yeah. a fixer up or a turnaround effort, what are the things we need to turn around and is there any urgency to it? So. 
sense. All too often, people will buy a, a second location and kind of leave it off on its own. As crazy as that may sound, it, it happens frequently. And if there's no cohesion back to the mothership, if there's no attachment, if there's if there's no you know control of it, yeah. then then that's going to create problems, and it's probably not going to rear its ugly head for a while down the road until something's really gone off the tracks. And you would rather have one of your trust employees to be there for that. For sure, I'm thinking even if there's an associate dentist working there, I mean, if there's no oversight, we all know that's a bad thing. I mean, I'm thinking all the ways you could embezzle, all the ways you could, you know, send in fraudulent claims. I mean, my mind automatically goes to like the worst case scenario that I have to clean up. Yeah. So yeah, you have to have somebody taking a look at that. Is it common to just send over an associate to the next office? It, it's common. It, is it the norm? There are groups that have different expectations in terms of acquisitions. For example, I know one here in the, the greater Charlotte market where they acquire a practice and their expectation is that the seller exits in extremely short order. Now, <laughs> now you would you would think that they want a point of stability, so they're they're buying that practice and they they want the seller to stay on forever, right? But yeah. they're buying the practice because they view the practice as having a lot of upside potential that the current owner has not been able to extract. And uh -huh. they have, uh, it's a probably a, a 10 to 12 location group here. So they have a lot of associates either in different locations or rotating around locations that are ready-made, so to speak, to drop in there and, and immediately give it some clinical lift and a, and a revenue shot in the arm. So their MO That's is to acquire a business and basically get the seller to exit and put an associate in there. Others say, well, we want to buy high-performing practices that are probably more dependent upon the clinical skills and the personality of the seller, and we don't want him or her to leave anytime soon. So it, it kind of depends on what your, your discipline is there. And, but I mean, that kind of goes back to what I was saying before about just because a practice is available doesn't mean you should buy it. The first thing is you should understand, I hate to put it in this trite term, but what's your secret sauce? Like what makes mm -hmm. you great, you know, sure. and what are your strengths and how do you want to apply that to a practice that you acquire? I see a lot of maybe like a very charismatic dentist does really well and then, you know, expands and, and it's just not the same. But I wanted to go back to what you were saying about the exiting in short order. The dentist may exit in short order, but now you've brought up the nightmare scenario that I hear about. And it's usually a very emotional email or phone call that I get. And that is, I went into work, they gathered us all in a room, and my doctor wouldn't even look at me during the meeting. And we've been bought. And I tried to talk to him. He went into the parking lot and he just said he'd text me later and I haven't heard anything. And I don't, I honestly, I put myself in the doctor's shoes. I've heard the other side too many times. The doctor is racked with guilt, feels so bad this happened and doesn't want to face the manager because they worked together for years. I mean, quite frankly, I'd probably stalk my doctor if he did this to me, right? So it is a, a nightmare that managers talk about. We do talk about this like, I, okay, this happened to me. You better watch out. Here are the signs. I understand the why, but... It's so hard to be the manager and listen to a manager that's gone through that. It's so emotional. So how do you how do you soothe that team that's now like, what the heck? <laughs> this is a common scenario that you're describing. Yeah. And some circumstances it may be warranted or it may be appropriate, but others it doesn't necessarily have to be. So the seller dentist mindset is I'm scared if I let the staff know they're all gonna leave. Sure. They're gonna leave me high and dry. The buyer's mindset is 
because if we don't tell them, they're all going to leave. <laughs> and the employee's mindset is, well, I don't want to be out of a job. I need to leave. Right. <laughs> There's all this insanity with it. Yeah. It's unfortunate because it creates a ton of anxiety. For the vast majority of the scenarios that I'm aware of and the clients we've worked with on a sell side capacity or our consulting clients who are acquiring practices, the buyer doesn't want to lose anybody. They are yeah. buying the business as a continuing operation uh, with patience, with cash flow, with all of the, all the people, the whole deal. And they valued the business knowing full well what the, the payroll was and, and the people involved. And, and they had some level of input from the dentist. You know, tell me about your office manager. She's been with you for 12 months now. What are, what's your impression of her? Tell me about your office manager. She's been with you for 32 years. You know, so they, they want to know about the people because they want to keep the thing glued together. A, uh -huh. a buyer's biggest fear is that the people who move the needle on patient retention and, and the revenue piece are going to wander off the reservation and they got to sure. go replace them. And that's bad for the buyer. So yeah. I think the first thing, if I can share with your, your audience, is that for every ounce of anxiety that you have about oh, you know, he or she sold the business, they're all going to fire us. I think I need to freshen up my resume. I would tell you there's just as much anxiety on the buy side that, oh gosh, I hope I don't lose any of these people. That is really their biggest fear. Now, unfortunately, you get thrown into the, the blender that is, you know, well, you're going to you're going to get paid by a new payroll company starting this Friday. And, uh -huh. and there are no questions that are that are unanswered. So this is or there are no questions that are answered at that point. Uh -huh. So this goes uh -huh. back to something I was saying about an integration team. How does an integration team allay those fears to keep it all glued together? And most enterprise level DSOs that acquire a lot of practices a year and, and have a formalized team and a, a structure and a process and all this other kind of stuff to it, will not buy a practice without what's known as a soft closing. And a soft okay. closing is when the usually like a regional director, be it a, a clinical director like dentist uh, or a, a regional manager, operations manager, come and sit down with the team and the seller dentist and huddle everybody up at the end of the work week and say, okay, hey gang, in, in two weeks, we, we've got an announcement for you. Dr. Smith is gonna be uh, retiring. He or she's had a wonderful journey. They created a great business for y'all and great outcomes for the patients. It's time for them to throttle down a little bit. And uh -huh. we're gonna be taking over the practice. We love what y'all do in the practice. We don't wanna lose any of you. We're excited about helping you do your jobs. We wanna find out what what you need and how we can help you be better at what you do and how you can uh -huh. create, create a greater impact here. And Dr. Smith's going to be around for indefinitely or for a couple of weeks or something like that. But they're, they're talking through and trying to soften the blow for everybody so that it's not so abrupt with somebody walking off and literally riding off into the sunset. It's, it's a very abrupt departure. It's emotional, as you said. So it's nice that that has big, become an, a thing, a soft closing. That's uh, yeah. good. I like that. What one girl told me, because she's savvy anyway, she said, I found myself in an unexpected bargaining position. And I thought, 
You are so smart. I mean, she said, I never had great benefits with him. Now I have benefits. I got a bump in salary. She said, I'm going to see what I can do here. And, you know, she forgave him eventually. But boy, it was really, it was touch and go for a while. She saw this as a, a leg up for her and her family. She's the main breadwinner. She saw this as a good thing. There's others that have not seen it as a good thing. I, I think you're right for, I mean, all negative publicity that can surround DSOs from time to time. We like to say, if you've seen one DSO, you've seen one DSO. They're not all alike. But <laughs> it's um, true. The, the truth of the matter is that, you know, most of them treat their people pretty doggone good. Most of uh-huh. them have core values and a, a defined culture and, and also a, uh, an employee development type of a program where they can learn greater <laughs> skill set and improve what they do and maybe take a, a step up in the ladder. And certainly a lot of them have retirement benefits and medical benefits yes. and all that that might not have been offered before, at least not to the degree that they're able to due to their bargaining power. And it can be a you know, great outcome for a lot of employees, really. The vast majority of dental workers, it's still childbearing age females, and they may or may not be the breadwinner. A lot of times they are. I'm running into a lot more that are, that are the bre- the big breadwinner, I should say. And they're operating without benefits. They're operating without retirement. And I just don't think a solo office can ignore that anymore because it's truly a competitive advantage to have these things for your employee. But again, then we're looking at that big line item on the P&L, right? So that's a that's the constant struggle, I think, with all small businesses. I, will, I love my employees, but my gosh, they're expensive. <laughs> when we look at solo practice, dentistry is obviously a great profession. It's a physically demanding profession, you know, dentists who own dental practices historically have built, you know, solid businesses and earned pretty good incomes out of them. And there's, Mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with that, obviously. Where we find ourselves in the solo practice space is that for those that take insurance, insurance reimbursement rates are declining. The cost of doing business, be it payroll and wages or cost of supplies and lab and any other ancillary costs are are seemingly uh, increasing. That hits the owner right in the back pocket. And, and it's, sure. a, it's a challenge to say, well, okay, how am I going to grow more revenue out of this? Well, I got an idea. Instead of working four days a week, I'll just stay open six days a week. That doesn't sound like a great response, you know, or uh-uh. if I if I want to <laughs> attract more new patients, I'll invest in a, in a marketing campaign with a marketing agency, which could be totally appropriate, but that's a soft cost and it's not, you can't take on a loan for that. So it comes out of the mm-hmm. owner's back pocket. Or if you want to learn how to do expanded clinical function, you know, procedures and things. That takes usually some expensive CE and possibly investment in some type of technology. So that's expensive. So that, you know, pushing the top end of the business and growing revenue in a solo practice space is, is challenging. And when you're trying to curtail costs, yeah, benefits are a reinvestment in your, in your people. And they're hopefully would increase retention of those people, but they are an added cost. And for sure. All of what I just described is easier to achieve in a group practice because there's more cash flow sloshing around for reinvestment, uh, ultimately. And those are things that are more on the table in terms of options if that's part of you know what you're trying to provide to your team. If you're working in a solo practice context, it's, it's challenging, I know. And you brought up insurance. Your offices that are expanding, what role, first in a de novo setting and in an acquisition setting, what's the consideration with plans? 
is is it an asset? Is it or a detracting uh, factor? What where do your clients see insurance participation? I'm going to back into an answer for you. Okay, we have a lot of mid to late career dentists that have built successful solo practices come to visit us and talk about building a group practice. And when I start digging into the business that they've built, you, usually it's like you know over a million dollars in collections and you know, some type of expanded clinical procedures and all that kind of stuff. And and when I push really hard and I say, well, what's the, uh, of the overall revenue that you generate, what do you, what's the percentage you think that's fee for service out of your business? And the answer is usually very high, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we, we take one, <laughs> we take this one insurance, but we don't take anything else. And, you know, we'll file on behalf of the patient, but they pay, you know, at the time services are rendered and, oh, Mm -hmm. so your accounts receivable is basically nothing, you know? And Mm -hmm. so you don't have to devote very many people to it, right? Right. Because you're collecting up front, less headcount to to chase, uh, you know, overdue claims. So that's a great thing. You probably have lower wages because of that. It's a pretty Mm -hmm. much a cash-based business. Congratulations. You have a unicorn. (laughs) <laughs> and and because that is such a great practice, these are usually like second half of the career dentists who uh-huh. built successful businesses and have been able to weed out insurance and focus on, you know, their target clientele, uh, which is great. Sure. And those businesses are usually hyper provider specific because the attachment of the patient is to the dentist. I see where you're going with this because I was waiting for the other shoe to drop and there it is. So I can tell you that, you know, my personal dentist in Charlotte is probably not too dissimilar from what I just described, although he does take our insurance. I have no idea what he charges for a cleaning, a crown, an extraction or anything else. And frankly, it doesn't matter because I am attached to him. I know him on a personal Uh level. I know the CEE goes through. I'm not going to leave his practice unless he loses his license. Okay. Uh, okay. So, so the challenge to this is when we build these businesses that are fee for service, they're typically provider centric and being a, a provider centric practice is darn difficult to scale. And because now if I'm trying to scale a business, that's a hundred percent fee for service in theory, at least in multiple uh-huh. locations, and it's not provide, I mean, those people who are paying a fee-for-service type of a a fee schedule, they want to have the extra TLC. They want to have the experience. They want to be tied to that provider. uh, And that can include hygienists as well, for that matter. Uh They don't care about what insurance covers or not because they're attached to the dentist himself or herself. Creating Uh that at scale in multiple locations is problematic at best. Wow. What you find is that most groups... They may not be 100% insurance dependent, but to say that they're deriving more than 50% of their revenue through fee-for-service is a pipe dream, unfortunately. In that situation, I think what the selling dentist is thinking is, well, my recommendation for the new dentist coming in will carry some weight because my, my patients love me. But if it's not a match, like you said, then poof, there goes your, your patient base. That's, yeah, you- that's very hard to take. It, it absolutely is. And that's why we wow. see a lot of, um, although we don't do a lot with solo practice type consulting, typically I hear it anecdotally just 
being connected to the community. We talk about, you know, second generation practices, you know, that were first generation was predominantly fee for service. Now the payer mix is changing. We're taking more plans. You know, we've Uh had some attrition. It could be that the the patients aged out just like the seller dentist did as well. You know, yeah. because there's yeah. a common age piece of it. And, you know, more uh, younger patients these days are they don't need as much dental care because they grew up with fluoride and, you know, everything else and have really good oral uh-huh. health top to bottom. But it could be that for what they do need, they're not basing it on providers. They're basing it on price transparency and convenience. And that's uh-huh. a scenario where if you're 100% fee for service, price transparency is pretty good, but chances are you're not open six days a week. I had a conversation on a mastermind call and it was a bunch, a group of dentists and I were talking about how it seems like when they, they're seeing these offices sell and patients are staying not necessarily because of the dentist, but because it's right down the street. It's always been there. The acknowledgement was these are not our age. These are the, ba- the not the baby boomers, I guess, the millennials and the Gen Zs and all that. Their loyalty is to the convenience factor of the office, not necessarily the staff. The ADA has done some studies. Their HPI, Health Policy Institute, has done some studies on this. And they had, it was a report that came out a couple of years ago. I think this was pre-COVID, so probably uh-huh. is, you know, a couple of years old now. But they polled a bunch of people and asked the question, if you could pay more for your health care benefits and maintain access to your primary care provider, would you do it? And about two-thirds said, yeah, I would be willing to pay more for health care benefits to, to keep my primary care physician. And they asked him the same question, said, would you be willing to pay more for your dental insurance benefits if it meant maintaining access to your primary dentist? And, and the answer was just the opposite. Only about a third responded affirmatively. And oh, the so, reason for so that sad. is because the younger patient base, millennials, like you say, purchase healthcare services the same way they purchase everything else. And that's through uh, price transparency and convenience. So if you're sure. if you're only open eight to five, three and a half days a week or something like that, you know, that's good for you, but it might not be good for attracting new younger patients if that's what you're trying to do. Um, sure. So the, the days and hours mean a lot, um, times of day and everything like that. If they simply associate the dental practice with getting my teeth cleaned every six uh-huh. months, then there's not a whole lot of provider loyalty to that. That's interesting. There's a whole generation of people that we're seeing in our offices and we're telling them they're healthy, giving them a clean bill of health. And we think we're doing a great job, but we should be talking a lot more about this is why it's important, building that provider loyalty. But I think our intent is to make them happy patients and telling them they've done good, pat them on the head and send them on their way. But we're actually adding to the issue of not very much provider loyalty, it sounds like. You know, you want to do everything you can to, at some level, uh, improve the patient experience, you know, and we can all get better at that. And I don't mean like, you know, foot massagers and, you know, (laughs) uh, paraffin wax treatments and all that kind of stuff necessarily. If you want to build a business around that, that's fine. But, you know, that's not what I'm talking about here. But I think (laughs) Certainly educating people about their oral health, even when it's good, so that they understand the long-term plan and and what this means to keep it up. And when you're seeing us every six months, especially if they're on like one of the membership plans or something like that, you know, where it it makes patients uh, more sticky 
as we say, it increases patient adhesion. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a great thing because you're you're building in the the roadmap for them for a lifetime of, of successful oral health. If we can further corroborate oral health and heart health uh, being inter interconnected, then that's a good thing across the board too. This is very good insight. I hope the listeners are thinking on how they can improve that on their side. We may have just put half of them to sleep with that. All right, so no, I, mean, I, no, I, I no. hope not. But uh, no, my listeners love this stuff. Are you kidding me? But I do want to kind of talk to the the people who are newer to the industry. And and I asked Perrin in the beginning during the pregame, I said, you know, do you mind just explaining some key terms? Because I I can't tell you how many office managers will call me and they were sitting in a meeting with something and all these financial people were talking to them and throwing out these terms. And they're like, what does that mean? I say, you know, go listen to this podcast. (laughs) So maybe if I could get some just definitions, just, you know, and not huge explanations, obviously, but like, what do they need to perk up for when they hear terms like, like, what is EBITDA? And and near multiples, and you're like, multiples of what? Like, algebra, what are you talking about? I mean, it took me a while. I had to do a lot of reading and learning on my own, but this is not intuitive to an office manager's. When you're saying EBITDA, when you're saying multiples, when you're saying PNL, I think PNL is pretty well known, but what are these terms you guys are throwing at us? What's going yeah, on? Yeah, apologies <laughs> for that. <laughs> PNL is profit and loss, and, and that's a, a financial statement that um, your accountant or the business owner's accountant probably furnishes on a monthly, quarterly, annual basis. And it's a statement that shows the revenues of the businesses, the uh, revenues of the business, excuse me, the expenses, like where all the money went, uh, what we paid for in terms of overhead and, and what's left over that's uh, reportable for tax purposes to the government. And depending on the type of entity, whether it's um, a, a C corp or an S corp or something like that, we can get into tax stuff, but we don't need to do that for today. When somebody wants to buy another business, think owner operator model or simply the owner, the absent owner model. Okay. If I am a young associate and I'm looking to buy my first practice, I'm looking at the overhead rates of a practice and I'm working in that practice. I'm doing clinical dentistry in that practice. And I have a team that I pay and patients that we see and everything like that. But after I pay the team and supply company and all the other stuff that we run through the business, the rest of it is pre-tax income for me. And out of that, I pay Uncle Sam some amount of money and I I pay uh, the bank some amount of money for for debt service. And the rest I deposit into my account. So that's an owner-operator model, right? And, Uh you know, it's not too difficult an equation to to figure out. When you get into this thing called multiples and EBITDA and all that other kind of stuff, that is in the context of a group practice. So if I want to buy a practice and I want to own a lot of practices, I'm most interested in essentially the operational cash flow out of each of those businesses because cash is the only thing I can spend, all right? Cash Mm, is different from net income. I'm not going to go into an accounting course here or anything, but cash is different from net income. And as the owner, cash is the only thing I can really spend. And this is the way we start to derive valuations for group practices. Because now as the owner, I'm going to pay an associate or associates to work in that practice or those practices. There's a clinical compensation rate. They're not, the associate's not the owner. They're an employee like everybody else. They're probably Uh the largest clinical producer, but I'm paying him or her a a percentage of their collections, for example, as a a clinical compensation rate. When we pay the overhead of a business and then we pay 
the associate or associates do the clinical work in it, there's some amount of dollars left over. And those dollars that are left over, roughly speaking, are what's known as EBITDA. And EBITDA is an acronym that stands for Earnings Before Interest, Taxes, Depreciation, and Amortization. And it's a way of looking at different businesses to try to come up with a way to, to figure out which one is more valuable. And the different okay. businesses might have, might, one business might have a lot of interest that it's paying because it's carrying a lot of debt. Uh-huh. One might have a lot of depreciation because they recently bought a bunch of capital equipment and they're depreciating it. One Got might it. have a lot of amortization, meaning they acquired another practice themselves and they're, they're amortizing the goodwill over some period of time. And all uh-huh. of those are what's known as non-cash deductions. So the, the okay. government wants to incent certain economic behavior, and they allow you to deduct things from your taxes, even though you might not have paid for it in full this year. Got it. When okay. we add those back, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, we arrive at some more equal comparison of businesses side by side, which okay. is different from a profit and loss statement. And so in our world, EBITDA multiples for a typical solo practice are somewhere between three to five times EBITDA. That's an okay. established industry norm because there are four walls, there's a roof, there's only a certain number of operatories. There's a finite capacity in that one location. Our okay. world recognizes that bet- to be valued somewhere between three to five times EBITDA. And that's different okay. from a group practice that in theory, at least, could be infinitely large. So EBITDA multiples for a group start growing from six to seven to eight to nine to 10 times EBITDA, the larger the EBITDA volume gets. Interesting. They increase okay. in valuation at a faster rate, the more EBITDA they're able to generate. I will hear things like it doubled our EBITDA or it gave us a couple points. The points is what you're talking about, right? That's when you say three to 5%. Um, um, it's not percent. Um, it's it's three... not percent, it's points. Yeah. So for example, I'll give you some hopefully easy math that people can follow without like too much mental gymnastics here. Let's say it's a a million dollar (laughs) revenue practice. That's a general dentistry Uh practice, million dollars in revenue, million dollars in collections. That practice is running a 60% overhead rate before doctor compensation. So the staff, the um, electricity, software, maintenance, everything like that supplies lab is $600,000 to operate that million dollar business, million dollar revenue business. If the revenue, a million dollars, is split 80-20, 80 to clinical, 20 to hygiene, that means the dentist is producing eight or collecting $800,000. Okay. And if we pay that dentist 30% of his or her collections as a clinical compensation rate, 30% of 800000 is $240,000. Mm-hmm. So we've got a 60%, or we've got 600,000 overhead plus 240 on clinical compensation. You add those two together and you get 840, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. Subtract 840 from a million and you get $160,000 left over. Okay. So that $160,000 is roughly equivalent to EBITDA. Okay. I'm just making things simple here. So if we say that business values somewhere between three to five times EBITDA, we take, let's say, five times 160, which is uh, $800,000, right? 160 times five is is 800,000. That's the valuation 
of that practice that I just kind of made up off the top of my head. $800,000, it's five times EBITDA, and the <laughs> EBITDA volume that we calculated was 160. So that would be the asking price then. Would Potential be that sale price. 000. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. So what can knock off a multiple? And like, what's a detriment? I mean, I'm guessing old equipment because it's going to cost more. Yeah. Right. I mean, or I mean, how does that work? Because I hear this all the time. Like, it. I was told this, and I I don't think it's correct, but and I confirmed with some other people. But I was told that having too much variation in software is actually enough to knock a multiple off a deal because it's going to be an extra cost to assimilate all the software. I thought that's a bit extreme, but you know, and I was told that they didn't. You know, I was told by by other dentists who acquire a lot that you know, they didn't think that was right, but whatever but so things like that like when you hear it's knocking off a multiple like like how bad is it to knock off a multiple we like to say and we represent you know sellers in the marketplace so we like to say that deals are made up of cash flow and risk Uh would dilapidated equipment result in a lower multiple would uh, multiple software platforms result in a lower multiple potentially I mean, if they're okay. replacement costs, I'll tell you, there are a lot of enterprise level DSOs that don't change software now. They just do a dashboard overlay and are able to extract uh-huh. whatever they need. Um, so it may not even be that a, a software change is mandatory in some. You know, if there is, if your equipment is 30 years old and is held together with scotch tape and band-aids, you know, <laughs> there's probably going to be an escrow amount held back for any any failures in the first year or two of new uh. ownership. So. Okay. Would that impact the multiple? Not necessarily. It might more impact the deal structure. But the things that impact the multiple are really more things that shift more of the risk onto the buyer. So if a seller says, I'm selling my business, like your example of the one that got in his car, drove away and was never heard from again. (laughs) Now, all the risk of maintaining the business is on the buyer. You know, Uh the, the seller is gone. So that shifts all the risk. Whereas if the seller said, hey, I'm willing to stay for two years, let's keep this thing glued together, you know, then that de-risks the position of the buyer. Interesting. It's important to understand when you start talking about multiples and what they mean, they come back to cash flow and risk and who who okay. owns more of the cash flow and who owns more of the risk in this situation. So I would say usually the things that result in lower multiples are people of productive capacity leaving in short order i.e. associates or the seller himself or herself. The second thing might be around payer mix, specifically government payer. And there are a lot of Uh groups and DSOs that don't want to buy practices or smaller groups with anything more than about 5 to 10% Medicaid exposure. So that could be part of it. There's a compliance issue and everything else that goes along with it. It can come down to two other things. One would be how many potential buyers are there? It's just like selling a house. If you're trying to sell your house Uh and there's one buyer for it, it's kind of a tough negotiation. On the other hand, if you're selling a house and there's 10 people lined up at your front door, you know, that love it, then you're probably going to get your asking price, right? So it's the supply and demand piece. And then the last thing I'll say, and not to get too wonky with your audience, but (laughs) deal structure matters a lot. So in a high value uh, solo practice or group, there's usually some component in cash paid to the seller Uh that he or she pays taxes, pays advisor fees, pays off the debt and deposits into their bank account. And there's some amount of an equity role into the new company, the parent company. So those that want more cash up front means that the buyer has to come out of pocket for more cash at at the deal table, might lower the multiple slightly. 
On the other hand, uh-huh. those that want more equity, the buyer has to come out of pocket with less cash, so it might be a slightly higher multiple. This is really a domain that managers never really were invited into, except for in the last 10 years, you're seeing yeah. it. And some of my manager friends are now regional managers and revenue cycle managers, and even you know at seat at the table at financial discussions, and it's super exciting to watch. So I appreciate you taking the time to, yeah. to give us this education. I mean, this, this has been great. Um, and I'm definitely forwarding this to my well, Dennis, I know you're listening. Listen up. <laughs> I know you're listening. <laughs> uh, so how did they find you? Because you offer, gosh, you offer a lot. You've got some web series that I've been I've been going through, and you've got your podcast, and you put on events across the country. So how did they find you, and how can they best like interact with you? Sure. Thank you for that. And, and we can send you um, uh, links for a lot of this for the show notes, obviously. But the, our website uh, URL is Polaris Healthcare partners.com polaris healthcarepartners.com i like to say we we looked for the longest unclaimed url and i think we found it with that so <laughs> but a lot of uh, a lot of what we do this type of business education is not first nature to a lot of people and so what you'll find on our website is a plethora hopefully of educational materials some of it is our own podcast called group practice accelerator you can find that on apple TuneIn, stitcher spotify all the all the major ones called group practice accelerator. We drop a, an episode or sometimes two every week. It's typically about business concepts and our information is kind of thick and dense. If you don't like podcasts, and I hope they do for yours, Teresa, but if you don't, <laughs> um, we have a, a variety of videos uh, about a lot of this stuff that's either on our website or on our YouTube page that you can subscribe to. On our website, there's a number of white papers and a blog series uh, and we do a, a seven-part webinar series that'll be uh, coming out. Uh, actually, the first one is tomorrow night, and that's in conjunction with CareStack and Darby. So okay. if you if you like webinars, uh, you can access it that way. And then we're hosting, uh, we host two conferences a year, one in May, May 10th through 12th in Fort Lauderdale called Building Your Enterprise Platform, and one that will be October, oh, is it, it's like 11th through 13th or something like that. Uh And it'll be in Phoenix this year with Dr. Mark Costas and the Dental Success Institute. We partner with him on that one. And that's called Scaling from Clinician to CEO. I speak, we speak at a lot of the trade shows and DSO events and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, so you can probably find us somewhere out there in a in a Marriott ballroom <laughs> in a different city on a different weekend, so to speak. But there's also a lot on our website. So I'd, I'd encourage your <laughs> listeners, if you, if you like this kind of type of content, subscribe to our podcast and our news feed and, and you'll get more than your money's worth. So I can attest to that. As a manager who was always looking for like the next thing, much to the chagrin of my boss, uh, what's, what's the next level of understanding I can reach? I mean, your podcast has been fantastic. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Got to listen to you at Voices of Dentistry. And uh, I'm sure we're going to run into each other again because you said like you said like marriott ballrooms look at a corner that we're probably there somewhere i have <laughs> more kind of marriott, our yeah i have more marriott points and american airways frequent flyer miles than i ever cared yeah. to own in my life yes that's the gig yes. right now right i keep telling myself i'm saving them for a first class ticket for my husband and i to go to tahiti and then every time he brings it up i'm like oh we don't have time for that right now so <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if we'll get there eventually we might get there when we have walkers i'm, I'm you, not quite you sure you should my wife and i went there for our honeymoon um about really? 10, uh, almost 11 years ago now and it was uh we went to Bora Bora and it was spectacular so I would encourage oh, yeah. y'all to 
plant the flag, make that happen. You owe it to yourself. You work hard enough to to get away. I see. Now he's going to listen to this podcast and say, see, that financial guy told you. That's right. <laughs> I will say there's no ROI on that other than just pure life fulfillment. But uh... That's all right. It comes with good stories, right? That's right. So, That's right. Well, thank you so much. I, I really, really appreciate this. I love the fact that you have the managers in mind and that, you know, y'all reached out to, to be on the podcast. So thank yeah, you very much. Yeah, absolutely. You do, a, you do a great job out there. You have uh, such a good following and, and, you know, what you do is important and, and your audience can move the needle in success and failure in these groups for sure. So hopefully I shared something today that, that lit up a couple of them. Oh, you did for sure. And I can't do any of this without my audience. So dear listeners, you know, I tell you all the time, I so appreciate that you spend any of this time with me. Thank you. We're all super busy. So thank you for making time for me today. The show notes will have any links that we referenced in this episode. You can also find links for my book and for my live events and webinar schedule. I speak often around the country on management and insurance issues. Come hang out with me in one of my classes. I promise you'll laugh and learn.